Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and welcome to the Monday edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Yes, it's a Monday. It's time to stretch and get back into the work week, get back into the swing of things. And we've got just the thing for you today. Big discussion. I We're trying to focus on Iran, on big government, a lot of the things where the election of November 20th has had consequences. And so Iran is clearly a place where there's a consequential policy change underway. The size, scope, and cost of government was on the ballot. Joe Biden won. He's got a big government approach. Republicans have a small government approach. Uh, And so we've brought in someone to help us referee this. His name is Brian Griffin. You're going to love him. He's a senior fellow at the London Center. Somebody who I think is really focused on the dynamics of policy and the gaps where the two parties stand. There are very different views of America now on display. The Republicans have a clear agenda. The Democrats have a clear agenda. A lot of that is in the size and trust of government when it comes to domestic policy. Joe Biden wants to blow out government, perhaps larger than even uh, FDR did during the Great Deal, or Lyndon B. Johnson during the Great Society. And Republicans believe that government is the problem, that the last year of the pandemic is proof that you can't trust the government. You can't trust it to run health insurance. You can't trust it to run uh, common sense policy. You can't trust it to run a pandemic. And so on every issue, it, it, there is a dichotomy, a difference. And we're going to have Brian really walk through many of these very important uh, issues and help us understand the differences, what it means, what the lexicon means, what are the opportunities, are, where voters are in the polling on these issues. That's on domestic policy. On foreign policy, You know, Donald Trump had a get tough on Iran, get tough on Russia, get tough on China policy. Biden was a... Go easy on Iran, go easy on Russia, go easy on uh, China for most of his Obama years. He swung around now on China, but on Iran, he's going back to the nuclear deal that many Americans found to be unpopular, inadequate. And there are two real visions for foreign policy on display. Republicans believe peace projected through strength is the key. Um, Democrats seem to be arguing through peace, through appeasement, pay billions, make concessions, try to get a bad actor to um, 
behave better. It's not unlike the different ways that people view how they should raise their children. So Brian is going to be here. Brian Griffin, senior fellow, London Center, is going to help us walk through all that. You're going to make a lot more sense of it. It's going to make sense. You'll be able to go to the dinner table, the water cooler, the boardroom, and have a more informed discussions about where the differences are in both domestic and foreign policy. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. Now, just before we get to that, let's uh, uh, queue up a story that I broke this morning that I think is important. There is, has been an ongoing whistleblower case working its way through the United States tax court, different court. A lot of people don't look at it in this court. There are two gentlemen who first burst onto the political scene back in 2018 when they were witnesses at a congressional hearing in the House when Republicans were still in control of the House that raised concerns about the Clinton Foundation, signs of problems, signs of tax issues, and they filed a whistleblower complaint, and that has been winding its way through there. We just got a hold of a new ruling in the case. Uh, the case has now been predominantly sealed. I think that's very interesting. Um, but... The judge's latest ruling has been unsealed. It's been provided to us um, by the court. We have an understanding of what's in it. And I think it's worth noting that a U.S. tax court judge is refusing to dismiss this tax uh, whistleblower case brought by two gentlemen. One is named Larry Doyle, long-term financial expert, private sector. The other is John Moynihan, longtime DEA expert on money laundering, I worked on terrorism and nar narco-terrorism and narcotics cases, uh, was an expert witness in Congress in prior years. These two men put together their own investigative powers. They said, hey, we think there are some bad things that happened at the Clinton Foundation. We believe the IRS should look at it. And if they do and recover money, we'd like to get a piece of the action. Classic whistleblower complaint that the law allows for, by the way. It does allow for it. Uh, there are whistleblowers in the IAS community that made upwards of $107 million in award payments because they got more than a billion dollars of proceeds back. Perhaps the most famous is a guy named Bradley Birkenfeld, and he has a lot of strong uh, feelings, and he, he blew the, way, the whistle on Swiss banks. So these two guys, obviously, they're trying to make money on their investigative work. They've been pursuing this case, and the judge has been a little frustrated because the IRS has not been able to answer a very basic question in the case. Did the IRS receive information from Larry Doyle and John Moynihan, the whistleblower complainants, that caused it to open a criminal investigation of the Clinton Foundation? And the judge in this ruling today rules that he's not convinced that there wasn't a criminal investigation and that there's a disturbing gap that's the word he uses, G-A-P, gap. A gap in the IRS records. When's the last time you heard about a gap in some government? Oh, maybe the 19-minute gap on the Nixon tapes in 72. You know, there's been some famous gaps over the years. Um, so the judge said, I'm not dismissing this case. I'm sending it back to the whistleblower office at the IRS and say, find out. Find out if there was a criminal investigation open because of these two guys. What happened to them? And were any recovery of proceeds made as a result? And so the case lives on. And uh, this judge is not satisfied in the record. Now, he's not giving him full discovery. He's not ordering a trial. Uh, he is basically saying the IRS hasn't given me an honest answer, a complete answer. I don't want to say honest. Maybe it's just a complete answer. And I want to know. Was there a criminal investigation opened of the Clinton Foundation at the IRS? We've been told previously there was one at the FBI, but the IRS 
What did it do? Was it prompted by these two gentlemen's large filing of serious wrongdoing allegations? And were any recoveries made? Because that will determine whether these guys were whistleblowers. Interesting that the IRS and the Clinton Foundation have not been able to put this to bed yet, to put it to rest. It is still active. Check out the ruling. Check out the story at justthenews.com. Always take a look. Always find the Clinton Foundation uh, uh, such a fascinating entity. It did a lot of good charitable work. It also had a lot of controversy about pay-to-play, which we have seen time and again, Russia, Ukraine, anywhere you go, the Clinton Foundation was amassing large amounts of money. In fact, one of the things that people forget about, remember, we let's go back to Russia collusion just for one second to remind people the perception of pay-to-play that the Clinton Foundation created. Even if it wasn't its intention, it succeeded at creating the perception, and perception, of course, drives people's trust factors. There is a fellow named Alexander Downer. You remember him because he is the former, or the at the time, the Australian ambassador to London who filed a complaint with the FBI back in July 16 saying, I think this guy, George Papadopoulos, advisor to Donald Trump, may have been involved in hacking. Uh, the Hillary Clinton emails maybe was engaged with Russia. He belatedly reports a conversation from May 16. He waits to July to report it, apparently. And that gives the FBI the predicate to open up the crossfire hurricane investigation that we now know was so enormously flawed, erroneous, filled with Russian disinformation. Now, remember, at the same time he's doing that, Christopher Steele, on the Hillary Clinton payroll through her law firm, is coming in the front door with the FBI with the same information. Well, why does Alexander Downer do this? Who is he? What role did he play? Well, as we now know from my reporting, starting at the Hill and continuing through just the news, it turns out that Alexander Downer, as a foreign minister of Australia at an earlier time in the 2003, 4, 5, 6 timeframe, arranged a historic $25 million donation to the Clinton Foundation back when he was Australia's foreign minister, their secretary of state, for lack of a better word. So he was a Clinton lover, someone who gave one of the larger donation, not of his personal money, but of Australian government money. And later he does something else that kind of fits the whole Hillary Clinton, Russia collusion narrative. That's why all of these foundations have been uh, involving the, uh, all the work of the Clinton Foundation has been so controversial. People keep seeing these crossovers of politics with um, and uh, with the charity. And so again, doesn't mean they did anything wrong, but it certainly raises questions of confidence, bright lines maybe being blurred between true charitable work and political charitable work, such as maybe helping getting Hillary Clinton elected. So in this case, the judge says, listen, the IRS hasn't convinced me. There is an incomplete record. There's a gap. Get me the information. He remanded it back to the whistleblower office. Very interesting piece of information. Very interesting development. Has a little legs to it. You got it here first at Just the News. You got it here first on John Solomon Reports. Check it out. All right, we're going to go to that commercial break. As we promised, we've got our great sponsors, our great advertisers. When we come back, Brian Griffin from the London Center. You're not going to want to miss it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, somebody who is an expert in American foreign policy and on many other things uh, in Washington and across the country. Brian Griffin is joining us. He's a fellow at the London Center. He's a lawyer, a writer, and as I mentioned, a, a real, a true specialist, a real expert in American foreign policy. Uh, we're big fans of the London Center and so so glad, uh, glad to uh, join Brian to the show today. Brian, welcome here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be with you today. Oh, it's an honor to have you. You have such an impressive resume, you know, arguing before the, the um, uh, courts, major courts, um, uh, being sworn in, I think, by Clarence Thomas, I heard. That's a pretty cool thing as a lawyer. That's pretty cool. Uh, but your your foreign policy expertise, your national policy expertise is really, really remarkable. I want to start with a place you've spent a lot of time looking at um, uh, Islamic extremism. I think you wrote an extraordinary book back in 2015, the Encyclopedia of Militant Islam. We're at a remarkable right. moment. Uh, we had a president that for four years imposed really tough sanctions on Iran and really crippled the economy, really began to put pressure on the regime. And now we have a president who very openly, going back to when he was running, told us that if he got in place, he would try to go back to the Obama-era nuclear deal, kind of an appeasement policy. Tell us where we are in that process and what your what concerns or excites you about where uh, Joe Biden is headed. Well, we're going to find out very shortly uh, just how far the Biden administration is willing to go to re-enter some type of deal with Iran. Um, but what makes me concerned is that we're trying to make a, find a diplomatic solution with a non-diplomatic partner. Um, Iran is a, is a very complex uh, nation state. You know, modern Iran was basically the result of an ideological revolution in 1979. Right. So their government is, it's half government and it's half um, kind of a, religion-led uh, ideological movement. And they've got these two parts that are working against each other, sometimes against each other, but sometimes in complete uncoordination. And that's the Iranian government and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC. And I'll tell you what's most interesting that we found out recently. It's the, it's the tapes from foreign uh, minister Zarif, Sharif, yeah. from Iran, who ba he basically said he didn't know what was going on in Syria, or he admitted to it which means that the IRGC is really not a state actor. So diplomatic measures with the Iranian government could be completely usurped by this other element of the Iranian, uh, of the IRGC. So the Republican Guard is essentially a free agent that isn't necessarily controlled by its civilian leadership, right? Isn't that the concern? Exactly. And they have access to military capabilities. They have access to huge financial assets, so they can kind of exist independently. They don't have to answer to the Iranian president. Uh, they answer to the supreme leader, and even that uh, relationship has its ins and outs, the leader and the president. Um, and then also, you know, they, they don't really have a clear uh, definition of what they're meant to do in Iranian society. So they do everything from military engagement to public works, which means that they have the perfect cover to be involved in the nuclear program, right? Because they'll say, oh, this is a public work. Civilian energy, do. right? But yeah. They could Exactly. But all the while, they could be doing this to have the weapons to be able to keep the Iranian uh, revolutionary ideals alive. So it's very concerning. And it's just not a there's not going to be a diplomatic solution to this, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think you're the first person I've talked. We've, had, we've been talking about Iran regularly on this show. It's very important to us. And 
Uh, it is the hallmark policy that will define this administration and perhaps the future of the Middle East in a big way. Mm. And um, you're the first person to really mention the the desegregation or the lack of cent- central control of the government and the mullahs over uh, the Republican Guard. And I think that's a dynamic that you know people in the military have been talking about for some time, but it's never bubbled into the public consciousness. When you have a rogue military operation, even if you're negotiating with the civilians, you can't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be able to enforce whatever deal that came into place. And so I'm going to go back to 15 and 16 after Obama and Biden uh, you know, negotiated the original um, uh, 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 nuclear deal. And right. the question I've always had, and I get varying answers, did Iran stay in compliance with that deal? Were they After they got the money and they got the deal, were they in compliance or were they bad actors out of the gate? Well, that's the thing. We don't know and we can't know over the agreement as to what is and what isn't uh, in, in the limits of the scope of the of the review. Right. Because Iran from the very beginning said, OK, we'll let you see some of our facilities, but not all. But not of all. Them. Yeah. And nothing and nothing says that we even knew where all of them were or where this was. You know, they were self-reporting where they were enriching uranium and, and how much to a degree. So we can't know and that's the problem that's why it can't work whether or not they were in compliance and i highly doubt that they were but if we set ourselves up to not have the ability to know um then then you know this is not um verification this is this is trust and iran has shown itself you know not only not to be trustworthy uh to to the world but not to be trustworthy internally the the irgc and the government are different hands doing different things and and then also i just want to mention that within the last week we saw yet another video come out of iran this time, they, it's some type of political propaganda piece where they're blowing up blowing the, the capital, right? Right. So, I mean, what, it doesn't make sense that we would have diplomatic efforts to, uh, you know, to, to try to work with a nation that still has uh, propaganda being put out uh, like that. They're, they're signaling one thing and doing another. Yeah, there is an incongruity between their words and their actions, almost on a daily basis, right. which I know is an intelligence challenge in the, in the community. Right. Um, I want to ask uh, if you could uh, try to handicap for us. If you know they're bad actors, if they are, the, as we've been saying for years, the largest state sponsor of terrorism, they killed our many of our troops in Iraq with IEDs who, mm-hmm. through intermediaries. What is the motivation for Joe Biden and his team, Tony Blinken and others? What, what is the motivation to try to make a deal? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, they're looking for a silver bullet to a very complicated issue. And, and you know, I don't know if it's a, if it's an idea behind I need to have some, some foreign policy credentials to show that my administration is a success. So let me negotiate with one of the most difficult negotiating uh, partners. Um, and I don't know if it's really just a lack of, of fully understanding or considering um, all of the different elements at play here. But it's it's just one that's destined to fail because of the, the, the because of Iran's structure and Iran's um, own words and actions. And, you know, if 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 their foreign minister, Zarif, um, is is basically telling us that he's not sure uh, what uh, elements are coming in and out of Syria, then how could we possibly uh, rely upon some type of third uh, party to tell us what uh, where uranium or uranium is being enriched or how much is being enriched or whether they're complying with uh, the standards of the agreement. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a misguided or it's an ignorant silver bullet that, that unfortunately cannot work and, and cannot work. It's the fault of the Iranians themselves. 
Now, the flip side to this approach is obviously the Trump administration's approach, Mike Pompeo's approach, the president, obviously President Trump did this. I want to ask the effectiveness first of how effective were the sanctions that, that Trump brought? Were these economic protests that we've occasionally seen from dissidents in Iran, are they real? Was the, has the economy been taken down several notches by these uh, sanctions that Trump imposed? Oh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, the Iranian economy is not very strong. Um, I think they have an equivalent economy to the country of something like Sweden, which has some fraction of their population. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's actually quite a very large population of people living in Iran. And so the, you know, the size of their economy really um, is lacking. And I think that has a lot to do with sanctions, not only put in place with the Trump administration, but sanctions that have been on Iran for quite some time. Um, also, their military uh, capability is, is quite outdated. But that, that can all easily you know, be changed if uh, the world kind of loosens up and, and uh, is supporting Iran either with, um, you know, buying lots of oil for say or, or selling the military parts. And, and by the way, China and Russia have signaled that they're willing to do uh, exactly that. And so we, there's the real potential for Iran to become um, even more of a threat than it already is. But even with its meager economy and meager military means, you know, it doesn't take a very sophisticated device to harm uh, people. It doesn't take a very sophisticated device to create uh, unrest in the Middle East. They are giving weapons and uh, military assets to Hezbollah and the Houthis uh, down in uh, Yemen. Uh, to, so it, you know, it, it doesn't take very much for Iran to be a real destabilizing threat. And that's exactly what's happening. So do we want to open up to more of that? I, I would say probably not. Now, Soleimani and the uh, airstrike against him, the drone strike with him, really did change some of the capabilities of Iran because he was both an inspirational figure, charismatic, and also an extraordinarily shrewd tactical military commander, particularly in guerrilla warfare, which is what Iran often exacts on its enemies. Um, have they been able, has Iran been able to recover from the loss of Soleimani, or was that a real game changer in their, in their uh, uh, state? sponsors of uh, state sponsorship of terrorism? So I don't think that, uh, you know, the individual that took over for Soleimani, I believe his name is uh, Ghani, I don't think he has been quite the charismatic leader. Uh, yet, the Iranians have certainly used Soleimani's death to spin this narrative of martyrdom. Uh, they call, you know, the American uh, operation the, the martyring of, of Soleimani. Right, so they're right. going to be able to use him, they're going to be able to use him in his death as much as he's been able to be dynamic in his in his life, and and they'll use they'll spend propaganda out of that. So, um, you know, I, I I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference. Besides showing the Iranians, this is the important thing I think it did do. It shows them that during the Trump administration, at least, you know, we're serious. Don't yeah. violate the agreement. Uh, don't violate agreements you make with us. Uh, don't don't maneuver militarily because there's going to be consequences. And if we don't continue to act from a position of there being consequences uh, for bad actions, then you know, what do we have to stop Iran from, from you know, committing further violence and uh, destabilizing further in the region? Yeah, that's such an important point. And I think when we go out, if, if they continue to build up their nuclear regime to a point where neighbors feel like they're going to be a nuclear threat, then we're going to create a Middle East arms race like we created between Pakistan and India in the 80s and 90s. Right. Um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, they probably all have to be thinking now we might need to get nukes just to have some protection from from Iran. Is that another dynamic that has to be weighed in this equation? 
Absolutely. Um, I know that Iran and Saudi Arabia recently, there's been reports of talks between them. I think that's because Saudi Arabia was forced into a very difficult position sure. where they have to talk uh, with Iran because they're not able to rely on uh, U.S. support as much. Um, I do think the Abrahamic Accords, um, the, you know, the peace that's been seen, unprecedented peace between Gulf states and Israel are in part because they share this, you know, common enemy of Iran. Right. And uh, it's a real threat to, to uh, you know, other countries in the region. So I, this, this, you know, perhaps can continue to spur those talks. So I, I think there's other things involved. And then you mentioned Pakistan. That's, that's an important element here, too, because Pakistan does have uh, nuclear weapons. And um, there's always the threat of, of Pakistan being destabilized and those weapons being compromised. Um, and Pakistan and Iran share a good portion of uh, their southern border. So there's just, I mean, you know, one uh, policy issue leads into 100 more. And uh, it's, it's really going to take some leadership on the U.S.'s part. And unfortunately, I don't think we're seeing the signals from the Biden administration that they are capable or willing of, of taking that leadership position. It's, um, it's going to be a perilous uh, month as, as this plays out and we watch how other people act. One of the things that comes up a lot in, you know, we, I think most people first became, certainly in my generation, conscious of Iran when, when the hostages were taken at the U.S. Embassy in 1979 and returned when, when Ronald Reagan became president. But the, the practice of hostage-taking of Westerners continues in Iran. In fact, there are dialogues in, over the last month where do, are some Western countries contemplating giving cash to Iran in return for uh, uh, hostages? It is a prima facie yeah. proof that the very country that Joe Biden says we can trust to negotiate continues to take hostages all through this period. Why has hostage taking been so effective for Iran and why do they continue to engage in it? Well, it does. I guess it does make them money. Um, but, you know, hostage taking is, are, are small wins that they can tout as major victories um, to their to their citizens. And, you know, part of Iran, I think part of what Iran constantly has to do is it has to prove, it has to keep its people distracted from the poverty and oppression that they live in to be able to continue its, um, you know, imperial um, dreams and visions and its aggression around the world and its posturing and its international kind of stick-waving. Um, and I think it's, it's very convenient for them to, ha to make these enemies of America and Israel. And unfortunately, you know, they, they do horrible things in, in the name of that narrative, like take hostages and commit mm. violence. So this is part of uh, Iranian government. Um, yeah. You know, this is what happens when you, when you don't have a free market, when you have an oppressive top-down system of government. I mean, you have to keep people distracted. So it, it is quite possible uh, that Iranians destabilize, the Iranians' destabilizing nature may never subside because they are not open to you know, systems of governance that allow people to flourish and prosper. So it's, um, it's an unfortunate reality of Iran that must be considered in all policy prescriptions regarding them. Yeah, it is. And, and uh, this is a subject we're going to have to keep a close eye on because a lot of dramatic, I think, change is ahead. And we'll have to see how the region plays out and reacts to it as it, as it occurs. I want to take it back to America now uh, and, and talk a little bit about something that has been on everyone's mind since November 3rd, maybe a little bit before November 3rd, the question of voting rights, election integrity. We've got the Georgia law. We've got other laws coming into place. Uh, I know you've looked at this a lot. When you, when you handicap where we are in uh, this debate, it wasn't that long ago when Jimmy Carter and James Baker believed voter ID was a great idea, and today there's a, an entire, you know, subsection of America that thinks voter ID is bad. 
they tend to be elitist, liberal elitists. And then when you measure the polling in the masses, you know, 70, 70%, 75%, 77% in our poll of American support voter ID, what's going on in this landscape uh, yeah. as, you, as you handicap it? There seems to be a disconnect from the populace and the elitists who run Washington. Good question. I mean, I think people can glean for themselves um, you know, the motives behind the, the way that this kind of the, the two sides have uh, been drawn on this, you know, for or against election integrity. Um, here's the thing, you know, before uh, the 2020 presidential election, a lot of state executives, bureaucrats, administrative agencies, unelected entities were making decisions about changing the election process to accommodate, you know, concerns with uh, with COVID. Right. Um, that you know those things were not created in, in in many instances were not new laws they were not examined by the legislature so what we're having now is we're catching up to the point where legislatures are having the opportunity to examine what happened and in some cases this examination is leading to laws being you know written this is uh, leading to um you know i guess shoring up uh, you know long-standing election integrity concerns but in many cases, what we're seeing, what's being told to us is some type of voter suppression is simply enforcing the laws that were already on the books. That's such a great point. I'll, re- yeah. I'll repeat that. Enforcing the laws already on the books is somehow now, you know, voter suppression. So the narrative here has just gotten completely out of control. And if I were the left, if I were Democrats, I would want, you know, if I, if I believed in my own line, like this election was the most secure in history, I would want every audit and examination of procedures possible to legitimize what I'm saying. They're yeah. not taking that point and, you know, again, read your own, uh, uh, I guess, prescriptions into that. Is there a danger that this boomerangs on, on Democrats at the, when you take the whole package, everything, and in a second, I want to get to one of my favorite topics. I know it's one of your favorite topics, the, the bloating of government, the size of government, just exploding under Joe Biden. But um, You've got, you know, uh, uh, defunding police, voter ID is somehow Jim Crow too, even though you have to show an ID to get on a plane or even buy a six pack of beer. Um, you have all these different sort of axioms in which the liberals say stuff and make really strong arguments and, and emotional arguments, but everyday people go and look like, well, that's not what is going on in my life or that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Is there a disconnect between common sense America and elitist America that, that could play out in this upcoming election? Oh, sure. And I mean, look, the Democrats eventually, I hope, they're going to be called to the mat to have to answer for some of the double standards in their own policy prescriptions. Um, They're saying that it would be oppressive to require an ID to vote, but they're also pushing for extraordinary new levels of ID and firearm ownership. So, you know, which is it? Um, Are are you concerned about the ability of access to the ballot, but not of the ability of American citizens to utilize their Second Amendment rights? Uh, You know, does race, as you say, does race play into your idea requirements for firearms. And, and there's, you know, any number of double standards that can go into other uh, examples just like that. But here's the thing, at the end of the day, um, an insecure uh, election apparatus is one that can be influenced by outside entities, by power and money and all of these things that Democrats, you know, claim to, to hate. Um, uh, what they're doing is opening up the election process to be influenced by that. People with money to manipulate the system, people with money to, you know, run massive ballot harvesting campaigns or, right. uh, you know, have, we're basically taking away the one person, one vote, um, you know, American principle and replacing it with the idea that money and power should decide uh, elections. And that's just wrong. 
So, uh, you know, there's some double standards here that are going to have to be answered for if the Democrats can be called to the mat for them, but they are certainly opening themselves up and the entire election process up um, into having a lack of confidence issues. You know, they're, they're saying this is that questioning the election results are undermining democracy. I, I think they're doing more on that end um, by, you know, by not, like I said, encouraging audits and examinations of this process to ensure that everybody has the opportunity to vote. And by the way, if it's difficult for somebody to get an ID, why don't we make it easier for somebody to get an ID instead of not require the ID to vote, right? I mean, if we really care, let's make it easier to get that ID and get to the ballot. Uh, it, just, it just seems to me like that would be a, an answer that really was concerned about uh, ballot access. 77% of the Americans we surveyed in the Justin News poll said they supported voter ID. It was common sense. And so sure. the Democrats are flying into the teeth of, a, of a, very few issues in America that are 70 plus percent, and yet they're fighting into uh-huh. that. So it'll be interesting where that struggle ends. Now, you mentioned the uh, the potential susceptibility of elections to big money. In this last election, we saw an unprecedented unprecedented injection of money, $350 plus million from Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook founder, into the Center for Tech and Civic Life, who then gave the money not to candidates, not to political parties, not to 527s, not to the people that are normally regulated by the federal election laws and by the Federal Election Commission. It went directly to the uh, referees of, of local and state elections. Money went to secretaries of states, to city clerks, mm-hmm. county clerks. Uh, and you know we've been doing a lot of FOIA work. We just got new FOIA documents last week. And you can see the goal of the money was to activate certain constituencies, to tip the normal election apparatus. It's supposed to be the neutral referee, the hockey referee of a game, right? Mm-hmm. And ask them to go out and register only black, Hispanic, Hmong uh, refugees, let's say, in Wisconsin near Green Bay. Is this new apparatus where money is going around the normal political election uh, monitoring system and going to election municipalities from one person with enormous wealth and power, does that concern you? Is that the sort of influence that you've been talking about that might that might make people troubled in the future? Oh, definitely. And John, I think we'd agree that we're not fans of laws or established election procedures being changed by administrative action or bureaucratic uh, decision-making. This, I mean, this is uh, elections and voter um, you know, integrity. It's such a vital part of the American um, you know, system that it should be something that is, is in the wheelhouse of, the, of state legislatures. And so money that can influence decisions made you know, by unelected officials or you know, basically top-down by decree always concerning it should be something that should be avoided if at all possible yeah no it's it's um a lot more illumination coming in that we're really beginning to see how these unelected bureaucrats were influenced by you know really large sums of money in a document we got last week the center for uh, tech and civic life the, the zuckerberg election group said that they asked fulton county in georgia would you like us to double your budget in the future election double the money whatever taxpayers put in the election Mark Zuckerberg wants to double it. And I, I, we found that just so shocking that that money could go. Mm. And the only way you get accountability is you have to file a FOIA because no one releases the information. So you don't know who got the money right. what the, and what they did for it. It's a really remarkable moment in electoral politics. And it's surprising to me that liberals and conservatives haven't fi- filed some form of a, a complaint, a Federal Election Commission complaint, to to challenge the the direction of this money in a place where I don't think the law currently envisioned it going. It's going to, mm. going to be fascinating. 
I want to go to my favorite subject. I think it's a favorite subject of yours. It's It was 40 years ago this year that Ronald Reagan gave his famous line in his uh, first uh, inauguration speech saying, government isn't the solution. Government is the problem, he said. And, and right. he vowed to reduce the influence and reach of government to lives. And Joe Biden, just a few weeks ago, gave his first joint uh, commission, a joint um, a speech to, uh, or a, a speech, a joint session of Congress, and said just the opposite. Basically, his theme was right. government isn't the problem. It's going to be your solution. What do you think about this moment where government has gone from being, you know, a pariah and a threat to American liberty to we want uh, a president who says we want it everywhere. It's going to fix everything. Trust me. Uh, where are we in that that extraordinary journey of American history? Mm. I think it is a most dangerous mindset. It is possibly, you know, an attitude that could most significantly harm America is to change our perception of government from being something that should be limited in its application and scope to something that should be the source of every solution to a problem that society faces. And that's what we're seeing from from Democrats nowadays, from the left side of American politics. There is no conversation anymore. At least I have certainly not seen any or a lot of focus on how big and how, how broadly reaching government should be. Um, every solution that's coming from Democrats uh, nowadays is about government. Uh, it's coming from government, government health care, government, yeah. you know, government every aspect of your life, government for environmentalism, government for education, more, 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 more government. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think Republicans too are dropping the ball on, on forcing that to be a topic of every single debate. That should be the first question asked about anything, any proposed government action. Should the government be involved here at all? And Reagan was absolutely right. The government should be you know, seen as a, as a last case resort and in many cases an enemy to prosperity and innovation and, and you know, individualism because government by design grows to protect itself. And, and by the way, while Reagan was saying exactly what he said, Maggie Thatcher was saying it across the Atlantic. Uh, in the face of some very damaging uh, socialist policies that had brought Britain kind of to its knees at the time. Um, and, you know, where is that now in our, in our national conversation? We, we had better continue to focus on it um, and, and revert ourselves back to at least considering at each juncture, at each issue point, should the government be involved here? If not, I think we're in for a reshaping of American society in a very, very harmful way. Yeah, and there's a whole generation, it, it appears that the millennial generation particularly has been brought to believe that government can be that solution. Most prior generations are more connected, I think, to the, to the liberty um, uh, sentiments of our founding fathers, that we, founding fathers and their ancestors fled a big government that was intruding into religion and business and lives. Uh, but we have an entire generation. In fact, that generation, the millennial generation, seems to a large percentage of them seems to believe that even socialism mm -hmm. is a good thing. How did we get to that? How did we get a whole generation that thought socialism is good, big government is better? Uh, where did that uh, value change occur? Uh, is it indoctrination? Why? How did we get to a point that one of the core values of America, the smaller government's better, has been flipped on its head? Well, I mean, um, you know, one of the ways I think we're there is that we're no longer having the conversation about how big government should be or, you know, what kind of entity is government? Is it a good entity or is it a bad entity? It's kind of just taken for granted. Oh, the government, you know, can be a solution to solve everything. And these, these solutions that are being offered are, are, are kind of short, um, easy to digest, 
fun-sounding solutions that have no real basis in reality. You, you can't just provide everybody with, with health care and expect health care to, to continue to have quality or innovation or for people to desire to continue to, to, to deliver you know, good health care. And by the way, how is it going to be paid for? And how are people going to be able to choose and prioritize their health care needs if the market's completely removed from it? All these questions are not what is being used to talk about uh, government solutions. But see, I, I, would, I think that you know, moving forward, there is a strong case to be made to millennials, which is my generation and younger, that everything that you care about, even those of you on the left, everything you care about can be done and achieved better through market solution, free market solutions and freedom than government. And that includes the, the hot button issues on the left you know, minds and hearts right now, which is things like equality. I mean, the free market is the great equalizer. Environmentalism, big government is worse for the environment. Big government destroys um, you know, the ability to actually have localized solutions uh, to the environment. Uh, you name it, income inequality, there we go. That, the free market is, again, the, the great equalizer. Um, because big government can only bring people down. It cannot build people up. It cannot add value to a, to a trade or a decision. So the case needs to be made and can be made, but I think right now we're seeing a lot of the attitudes that we are because it's being um, simplified and, and, and spoken with, uh, with deceptive tactics. And, and it's, you know, it's, it sounds good, but it just it, it has no virtue and is not based on reality. The... Um... This year, we will spend six to seven trillion dollars above our normal spending for government, which includes all of those entitlement programs that are mandatory spending and all the discretionary spending. And we were already digging, digging trillions of dollars a year in debt uh, before we started spending six trillion. Is an awakening moment if interest rates tip up even a half point or a point? Let's say we I went to the gas station last couple of days, and my God, gas was over three dollars a gallon for the first time, and I can't remember when. Um, inflation is going up. Often interest rates are the solution to push it back down. Uh, is it possible that that moment of understanding how much our debt costs us could be the education moment that scares some folks into uh, a reality check? It's quite possible. And, and that's unfortunate that it would have to come to that, to really, you know, having somebody be harmed in their financial or present reality to understand just how dangerous uh, continuously larger big government policies can be. But you're right, we're seeing it at the gas station. We, we might see it in interest rates. We're gonna see it in, in the inflation of our dollar. Yeah. Um, and uh, people are gonna have uh, less ability. You know, I, there, there's a lot of talk nowadays on the left about uh, the need for a living wage. But I think what's not being analyzed is uh, how much uh, prices are increasing and things are becoming uh, unaffordable and inexpensive because of big government policy you know, that causes inflation uh, and bad policy that causes, you know, all types of market disruptors um, that, that make it more difficult for people to get by on the income that they have. So, I mean, unless we start to have some honesty injected into our conversation about government, about, you know, when it is and isn't actually effective and helpful to people, then it, it will take some type of, you know, shaking moment um, in somebody's life for them to realize that this this pipe dream of government solving everything is just, it's, it's a lie. Yeah. Hasn't worked. Yeah. I think there'll be a, right. And we just got through a pandemic. Yeah. That's the funny part. The pandemic was a perfect learning experience of how often government can get things wrong. Um, Do you think people absorb that? Do you think that's coming to be processed now by everyday Americans that watching Anthony Fauci flip flop us a a dozen times or, uh, you know, uh, somebody say the vaccine is not the solution, but then we get the private industry to do it. 
private initiative wins. And now that very group that said, we can't make vaccines that quickly, they'll be unsafe, are embracing it. Somewhere along the line, the Americans have to go back and say, wait, you've been selling us a bill of goods. Be interesting. Yeah. Do you think that the, the pandemic experience shook, some, uh, shook the trust of some Americans in their government? It's a good question. Um, I, I think it certainly started to bring a lot of questions up. Uh, to which there were very quick, uh, you know, narrative-led responses to them that we're seeing. Um, but, you know, a, a student of history can see how many times government has been tried as the solution to societal problems and has not just failed, but been incre incredibly destructive and extraordinarily, um, uh, you know, harmful uh, to society when it just, when it inflates beyond all consideration. Um, so, you know, if, if, we're not, if we're not examining history now, and learning lessons from it in terms of the nature of government. Um, you know, what will it take? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, it's uh, studying these issues are fun and having a conversation with you, Brian, is so much fun. I mean, we can, people can really appreciate why your expertise is so uh, uh, important at the London Center and all the places that you uh, uh, think and, and drive conversation every day. We need to have more conversations like this because I think when people mm -hmm have a common sense conversation, light bulbs go on that they ordinarily don't get the chance to do. So I want to thank you so much for coming on today and helping us walk through thank so you. many important issues. And I want to be sure we get you back on the show regularly. I'd like that very much. Thank you for having the conversation. I enjoyed it. All right, Brian. Thanks a lot. Well, all right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. Folks, Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and so much more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutritional packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious and easy. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. If you're like me and have a busy schedule that the last thing you want to worry about is what to eat or having to go to the grocery store, Factor makes it easy. As they are flexible to your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. 
Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Plus, Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, usually in just two minutes. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash justnews50 and use the promo code justnews50 to get 50% off. That's the code justnews50 at factormeals.com. One more time, factormeals.com slash justnews50. Use the justnews50 code and you will get 50% off your first order. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. So grateful you joined us today. Hey, check out that IRS story. I think there's a lot of meat to it, a lot of interesting developments. The Clinton Foundation continues to create intrigue, in this case, a gap in records at the IRS that maybe needs to be resolved. Fun stuff. Check it out. Breaking news. You can read the judges. willing to have to take my word for it. Use the digging tool. And again, special thanks to Brian uh, Griffin at uh, the London Center, all of our friends at the London Center, Tony Schaefer, who appears on Fox often, great former lieutenant colonel in the Army, great all-around guy. Uh, they run an important think tank, and it was just a good analysis. I thought we had a good discussion substance. Sometimes just talking about these issues that often get blurred in the media can be a really valuable thing. I learned a lot. I hope you did. Check out the IRS story. You'll definitely learn something there. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Yeah, we'll break a little news. Maybe we'll have a good interview. We'll definitely try to keep you well, sir. Thank you for listening. God bless you. See you tomorrow. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now.